grace. It is marvelous, matchless, infinite, wonderful grace. Lord, we are here this morning because of grace at every part of our life and existence, our salvation and our hope is grounded in what you have done for us, not only because we were undeserving, but in spite of our deserving wrath and judgment, you have instead for us shown us kindness, gentleness, mercy, grace, forgiveness, hope. We thank you for these things, and again, Lord, we ask that you would continue to unfold for us the wonder of them. For it is our understanding of grace that shapes our lives. And so, Lord, we want to be shaped by all that you have done for us in Christ. Indeed, we want to be shaped and conformed to the image of our Savior. So to that end, bless the preaching of your word and the remainder of our time together today. And we pray these things in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, who died, who rose, who intercedes, and is returning for us. Amen. All right. Well, as we began last week, those of you who were here, um, we started looking at a theology of judgment. You know that we're coming in in the next few weeks to Revelation chapter 6 and then following, which is unfolding for us the coming judgments of God upon the earth, the coming judgments of God against the wickedness of man and the corruption of man on the earth. And so we want to take, uh, pull, pull the car aside, as it were, for a moment and consider an overview, a big picture of judgment as it relates to God and his relationship with man, the condition of man, and the future of all things. And so we began asking ourselves certain questions. What is the judgment of God? Why is there the judgment of God? And how are we to think and respond about God's judgment as Christians? So it seems helpful, again, to answer these questions to prepare our hearts for what is to come in the book that wraps up the end of God's purposes for this present age. And it is important as well because judgment is, within Scripture, essential to the glory of God and to the purposes of God, to the exaltation of His name. There are many places we could go, but let me just remind you of two passages along those lines. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 17, which is recording to us the coming judgment of God. It says, he says this, God does through the prophet, The pride of man will be humbled, and the loftiness of men will be abased, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So everything in man that is raised up against the knowledge of God, everything that in man that is raised up against God as creator and the sole being who deserves the affections of our hearts will be brought low and God will be exalted on that day. Ezekiel 28:22 says this in relation to God's judgment on the city of Sidon, but being uh, displaying that principle of God's glory and judgment, he says this through the prophet Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel 28:22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will be glorified in your midst. And then they will know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her, and I will manifest my holiness in her. The judgment of God against this rebellious people was directly connected to his glory, to the manifestation of his holiness, that is, the glory of his great name. Now, as I noted last time, and you're well aware, that many in the church have a difficult time with the reality of God's judgment. 
And that is due in part to some sense that man really isn't that bad, isn't really as bad as Scripture says that we are. Or that God's holiness cannot really be that severe. It cannot be that weighty in what it requires of man. Or it is the idea that things in this world really should be better than they actually are. There should be more peace and there should be more flourishing and so forth. Our response then to the reality of God or to God's judgment serves for us then as a litmus test to our view of the gospel, to who God is, the condition of man and the person and work of Christ. Our view of God's judgment really reflects how much we view the world and the the lens that we have in relation to the world, whether it is centered primarily on God and His glory and His works, or whether it is centered on and beginning with man. Now, with that being said, let me briefly review our points from last week, and then we'll move forward. I'm going to try to finish this week, but there is the potential uh, that it will be a third part, but definitely ending at three, if so. By way of brief review, very brief review. What is the meaning of judgment? Judgment has the base idea, the term itself, of to separate or to sift. It very quickly came to have the idea of verdict or rendering a verdict or rendering uh, judgment. And that is uh, the primary sense of the term. Judgment then is the execution of justice. So judgment and justice are bound together. What is judgment is to reveal what is just and to make just decisions. Therefore, judgment is necessary to uphold civil and personal responsibilities with any society that will be stable and will be flourishing. Israel's leader is God's covenant uh, Israel's leaders as God's covenant people were to execute then just judgments and to maintain spiritual and moral moral purity of the nation. The spiritual health of the nation was, and the spiritual health of the king was demonstrated in how just were their judgments and how they upheld justice and righteousness among the people of God. This justice and righteousness was based on God's revelation. And these judgments themselves then reflected the will of God. And we know that this is the same for the church as well. The church is to judge herself. And when the church makes judgments consistent with the word of God, it is reflecting the will of God in heaven. That's Matthew 18. We noted as well that God renders righteous judgments for his people based on his covenant faithfulness. So he raised up judges in the book of Judges, and through them he brought deliverance to his people, judged the enemies of his people when they cried out to him for help, and those judgments were based on his covenant promises and faithfulness to his people. We noted as well that God's righteous judgments are also against his people when they fail to walk in obedience, when they reject the word and the, they, of God and they reject the covenant and they reject the living God. And we noted that is also true with the church. We read it uh, last week that in 1 Peter 4.17, judgment begins with the household of God. We noted as well that God brings judgment to his people through other nations and uses his people to judge other nations. So part of God's judgment is how he exercises that in the wars and the conflicts of men who become his mediators of judgment. So God used Israel to judge other nations when he brought them into the land. He judged the, the, the wickedness of the people in that land. And at the same time, when Israel sinned, he used other nations as the rod of his discipline and to judge his own people. 
In the end of it all, the theology of judgment then begins with this assertion that God is the source of all judgment. James 4.12 says there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy, reflecting there as well Isaiah chapter 33. So judgment then, since it begins with God, it comes from God, and all right judgment reflects the will of God, must be understood in the light of the nature of God. Who is God and who is man? How are we to think about the world and how do we think of God's reaction of judgment within his creation? And so we noted last week at the end, it begins with understanding that God is the creator. And by saying that God is the creator, it is to say that God is the owner of all things. He is the potter, we are the clay, everything in this earth belongs to him. He says repeatedly, the earth is mine, the land is mine, the firstborn is mine, and so forth. He owns all things, and that is the beginning point when we think about God. We noted then that as creator, he is also holy and good. That is to say that he is transcendent, separate than his creation, but it is also primarily thought of in terms of the moral nature of his holiness. He is utterly separate from sin. And man made in his image then is to reflect that holy nature of God. We noted that he is also good. And that what is holy and good, those are inseparable terms as well. Nothing is good that is not holy. And so when God, as the holy creator, made all things, he declared at the end of it that it was very good. It was without sin. Is at the heart of that as well. Man created in God's image then was made without sin. But sin entered into the world through Adam. And it brought with it the promised sentence of God, death and condemnation to all humanity. And it even brought to it the weight and the burden of sin on creation itself. So that we are familiar with Paul's words that all creation groans under the weight of sin, waiting for its freedom, waiting for its release, waiting for its being released from the burden of the corruption of man that dwells on it. So then there is a predicament that that describes God's relationship to the world. God is the owner. God is good. God is holy. Man is sinful. And that then sets the conflict to which all men are brought into the world. God's holiness and goodness stands in direct opposition to man's sin. And that's essentially where we left it last week. I want to go on. But they note here then the character of God's judgment. What is the character then of God's judgment as he lives high, holy, and exalted, always viewing man's sin, how does he respond to it? What is the character of this judgment in his response to man's sin? Well, let me bring that together by saying that God's judgment is sourced from his infinite righteousness. Righteousness and justice, then, are the foundation of his throne, and righteousness, then, is the character of his judgment, the first aspect of his judgment. When he brings judgment on his people and on the earth for any against sin, the attribute of God that is exalted most often is the fact of his righteousness, the demonstration of his righteousness. Let me give you just a few examples. Isaiah 5.16, and this is where he is declaring after having laid out the charges against his people who have... Uh, who are living in covenant treachery, he says this of the judgment to come, the Lord of hosts, Isaiah 5.16, the Lord of hosts will be exalted in judgment and the holy God will show himself holy in righteousness. 
That is to say then, the burden of God as he brings judgment even against his own people is to exalt his own name, his own holiness, his own glory, his own righteousness. Capturing that idea and the significance of it, uh, one commenting on Isaiah, Isaiah 5.16 says this, This verse is of great theological importance. For it expresses the truth that what makes God truly God, what sets him off as divine, is neither his overwhelming power nor his mysterious luminousness. Rather, what marks him as God is his essential justice and righteousness. The characteristics, these characteristics are what must eventually humiliate all human beings in his presence. Another commenting on that verse says helpfully, It is then by means of the judgment that he makes himself known as righteous. In the punishment of sin, the righteousness of God is seen. When he punishes sin, he upholds then what is right and what is good and shows the corruption and the evil of that which is not good, that which is wicked. And this is true even when he disciplines his children in that fatherly, paternal kind of discipline in which he shapes them through adversity. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.75, I know, O Lord, that your judgments are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That whatever God brings, even in this sense, an adversity into the lives of his people is a reflection of his righteousness and to mold his people into his righteous character and righteous ways. Now, that being said, I want to note three important aspects of God's uh, righteousness in judgment. So God's judgment entails in three essential elements. And again, we're just going to mention all of this briefly. First of all, that is to say, to say that God's judgments are righteousness is to say this, that God's judgment is based on infinite, perfect knowledge. Infinite, perfect knowledge. There is no ignorance in God. And his knowledge then includes not merely events that are factual that have happened as if he merely stands outside of creation as an observer on the deeds of men. His knowledge is so absolute that it goes to the intentions and the thoughts of man. It is comprehensive knowledge. And this stands in direct contrast to the weak, the limited knowledge of man, which is very often ignorant, is always limited to some degree as a creature, not so the knowledge of God. It is with absolute perfection in every conceivable possible way. And of course, this is known, exalted throughout Scripture. Before God brought judgment upon the world in the flood, which we'll mention in a bit, He says this, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that, you know this, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And even after the flood, he made this declaration to Noah, The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. God is not merely, again, aware of thoughts and evil thoughts as if he could merely just have that kind of knowledge, but he knows the very reason behind the thoughts so that... His knowledge is absolute. Romans 2.16 says this, speaking of the judgment of God, he speaks of the day when, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 4.6, Paul declares this, 
telling the church not to go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's heart, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. In other words, his righteous judgment is absolutely righteous because it's based on absolute knowledge and perfect knowledge. There is nothing that escapes the knowledge of God. There is no defect. There is no weakness. There is no ignorance. There is nothing that limits the righteousness of God when he brings judgment. In fact, Paul summarizes that idea in reference to man's condemnation before the law when he says, through the law comes the knowledge of sin so that every mouth may be closed and all of the world, Jew and Gentile, become accountable to God. That means that there is no one standing before God when he holds their life to account that will have anything to say, but their mouth will be closed. It also means then, so God's righteous judgment is on perfect knowledge. It also means that his judgment is without partiality. Righteous judgment is, his righteous judgment is without partiality. Leviticus 19.15 showing how this is to be reflected, this character of God in his people, says this, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. And that is because that reflects the righteousness of God. 1 Peter 1.17, speaking to the church, says, If you address as Father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. That is to say, then, that God's judgment is utterly without reference to status, education, age, race, culture, or any other external criteria. It is based solely on one's response to him and response to the revelation of himself both in creation, both in special revelation in scripture, and ultimately in Christ. It is to say then, it is without partiality. It is without partiality. Thirdly, and third aspect, it is with perfect knowledge, it is without partiality, and thirdly, it is with equity. That is to say that his righteous judgment is fair. The punishment fits the crime. It is not too lenient to those who deserve more punishment, and it is not too harsh to those who deserve less. It is equitable. Psalm 9.8 says this, He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. With equity. And that sentiment is echoed throughout Scripture. Righteousness and equity, then, are bound together. Now, to say that, then, also means this, another part of the character of God's judgment, under the equity of God. It is to say, then, that judgment will be experienced in differing degrees of suffering and reward. And here, primarily, I'm referencing eternal judgment, the eternal consequences of sin. That is to say that each judgment of God on the individual will exactly meet or meet that individual's uh, sin, the righteous response to that individual's sin or faithfulness. Indeed, there are various degrees of punishment and various degrees of reward. And let me just briefly mention that. In terms of punishment, there will be degrees of suffering based on a person's response to the revealed word of God, based on to their exposure to the truth and what could be known about God. Let me give you one passage just you're familiar with, but to make this clear. In Luke chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus says this. 
Speaking of the judgment that is going to come when, when the master returns, speaking of the return of the Messiah, he says this in 47, And that slave who knew his master's will and did not get ready or act in accord with his will will receive many lashes, but the one who did not know it and committed deeds worthy of a flogging will receive but few. From everyone who has been given much, much is required, and to whom they entrusted much of him, they will ask all the more. In other words, based on how much exposure a person has to the truth, how much exposure they have to the revelation of God in Christ, particularly in our age, based on how much exposure they had to the truth, God will determine the intensity of their judgment if they have rejected it. So that means then that the person sitting in a church pew, obviously, who dies apart from Christ, so Matthew 7 Depart from me, I never knew you, will have a judgment that is so much more severe than the one who was born apart from the gospel and the opportunities to have sit regularly under the preaching of God and have access to his word. That means then that the judgment at large of those who reject Christ who grew up in America will be more severe than those who reject Christ who grew up, for example, in the rural North Korea and so forth. So it would be important then to note that if you are not in Christ and you are here this morning, this is increasing the judgment of God as long as there is a hardness of the heart in response to his revelation in Christ. The point here, there are degrees of suffering based on exposure to truth. This is the equity of God. There's also degrees of reward based on faithfulness to Christ. Nobody who is in Christ will be punished in terms for their in their sin there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus but even Christians will be evaluated and receive from God a reward that is consistent with their faithfulness with their obedience with their sacrifice in out of faith for Christ again there are several passages let me give you just one and here it's primarily in reference to Christian teachers but the principle extends beyond that of course to all Believers, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says this. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now just to clarify this, lest there be misunderstanding, although we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, that is to say that there is with God a judgment that will come to believers in which their capacity to enjoy the glories of heaven and their salvation will be at varying degrees based on that individual's faithfulness. That does not mean that anyone will experience within themselves anything less than a fullness of joy and glory, but it does mean the capacity for glory and joy will be different for each individual based on their faithfulness. I think if I could just give a, quickly an illustration there that uh, I heard, I always found helpful in illustrating that point. If you had a four ounce glass of water and a 12 ounce glass of water, and both of them are filled to the top, each is experiencing fullness. Each of them is experiencing no lack and fullness of joy, but one is more than the other. That is the idea of rewards, even for believers. The overall point here, however, is simply to note that God, when he judges righteously, judges with perfect knowledge. 
There is no weakness in his knowledge. He judges without partiality, and he judges with equity. And in judging with equity, that means both the suffering of the wicked and the joy of the righteous are individually determined based on their response to the truth and to the gospel. Also a part of God's judgment is this. That his judgment then, because he is holy and he is good and made all things to reflect that, his judgment upholds the greatest good and is therefore an expression of love. His judgment is, in fact, an expression of his love. And how many stumble here to think that judgment is contrary to his love and it's exactly the opposite. His judgment is consistent with his love. In fact... We could say this, that God, if he did not judge sin, would be unloving, and he would not be good. In fact, the proof of his goodness and the proof of his love is his judgment. And I would just make a note here, just to kind of put this thought into your head. If God is who he says he is, and he is as he is revealed in Scripture, that means he is the highest possible and conceivable good in all of the universe. Nothing more beautiful, no one more holy, nothing more wonderful, nothing more excellent, nothing more precious can be conceived of and could be other than God himself. That means then that he would be the proper end of all things because we would always tend toward the highest of any good attribute and he is the highest good. And anything that is contrary to that is then necessarily bad and it corrupts that which is good and must be eliminated. And that is why God proves his love and his goodness in the judgment of sin. Because sin and rebellion ultimately destroy and seek to corrupt and diminish what is good and what is worthy of love. But let me just give a couple of statements here. Uh, from Scripture, the Lord keeps, Psalm 145, verse 20, the Lord keeps all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever. God keeps those who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. He keeps those who love him because he has reserved for those who love him all that is good, all that is a blessing, all that is joyful. And he destroys the wicked because the wicked stand in contrast to that. They stand in contrast to it. And so out of his love for what is good and out of his love for his own, he destroys that, is, that which is wicked. As a matter of fact, the very essence of the fear of God and of righteousness is to hate evil is to hate evil it says that of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1 he loves what is righteous and hates what is evil and consider that even for a moment consider why it must be this way what is the character of wickedness? What does wickedness bring? And remember, we're starting with this one foundation. We're starting, as we could say, with first things. That is, the order of all things as they were meant to be and as they are in their essence is created by God. And so if everything was good and holy in creation, it means then that that is the standard by which we judge everything else. And listen to how, however, what sin brings into God's holy and good creation. And just listen, you're familiar with this. And he's speaking of a people given over to sin. And he says this in verse 28 of Romans 1. They did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer. And so therefore God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, 
full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slander, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. So God who created a world that was to be reflected with these two essential realities, a love for God and a love for neighbor, marked by humility, service, grace, kindness, gentleness, is instead, because of sin, marked by violence, corruption, deceit, gossip, oppression, abuse of power, unfaithfulness, and every evil thing. And so God, in his goodness and his love, removes that from his creation so that what is good alone may dwell with him and for those who belong to him. God's judgment of the wicked and their removal from the earth is an expression of his goodness and love for what is good. Now, that being said, let me note briefly, then what are significant judgments in Scripture that, that show this? Well, there are a variety of judgments on individuals and nations, whether through natural disasters, wars, violent death, or direct acts, acts of God. Those are, those are littered throughout all of Scripture. But let me highlight a few of the significant judgments of God that make this reality true, I mean, that illustrate this reality. But even before we look at these, let me note that every judgment of God against sin is in itself a reminder of the true condition of man and anticipates the final reckoning and the judgment that awaits all men. So every judgment, even every little minor judgment that he brings, is ultimately pointing to this end judgment, this greater judgment that is to come at the end of the age. That being said then, if we're thinking rightly and if we're thinking biblically, the surprise is not when God brings judgment, the surprise is that he doesn't bring more judgment. The amazing thing is not that he judges sinners, but that he withholds so much judgment from sinners. We noted last week, Psalm 7, I believe it's around verse 9, that he is a righteous God. He has indignation every single day, and yet he stays his hand. He withholds his judgment. He holds back his fury and his wrath, giving continually the opportunity for salvation. And in fact, again, just as a side note, this then should lead to repentance, and we'll come back to this next time. But let me give you this verse just to put it in your head. Do you think lightly then of the... Well, first of all, he says, do you think that you're going to escape the judgment of God? And then he says, Romans 2, 4, do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God, the withholding and the staying of his hand in judgment should produce repentance. And the longer one doesn't repent, as he goes on to say, it stores up just more and more wrath. But we'll come back to that. Let's look then at some of his judgments. The first is this, at the very beginning. His judgment then began with his judgment on Adam and Eve, which is to say, his judgment on humanity, them as the representatives. All mankind came from them. Adam and Eve brought on humanity the sentence of death. The sentence of death. This is demonstrated in many ways, but at the end of that account, most dramatically in their exclusion from the garden. Their exclusion from the garden. Of course, it was demonstrated in their hiding, their making excuses, God cursing the ground, him having to cover them with clothes. But the end result of that, the culminative effect, was that they were excluded from the garden, which is to say they were excluded from the presence of God. Genesis 3.24 says, He drove the man out, and at, 
And at the gate of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. This was both a physical reality and that they were actually physically removed from the garden and not allowed entrance back to the garden, that special place of God's presence and blessing that they had known. It was also a picture of man's spiritual state in sin. What is man's natural state under the fall? It is this. It is to be estranged from God and excluded from his presence and the joy and the freedom and flourishing he designed in creation. Now we need then, before we would have any thoughts about God's relationship to the world and the rightness of his judgment, we need to understand this, that the fundamental relationship of every human being that comes into existence from the point of conception on is one of estrangement and rebellion. Not of neutrality, not of some spark of goodness, not of a lot of human potential, but of rebellion and of condemnation and of hostility toward God. That is the condition of every single human being that enters into this world. So what happens is more human beings are born. There's more hostility toward God, more rebellion to God, and more corruption that is introduced into the world through a morally corrupt image bearer. That's the condition. And so this then entered into the world through Adam primarily. It began then the process of physical dying. The often noted and theologically important refrain of Genesis 5 is this, you know it, and he died, and he died, and he died. And of course, even before that, we have the very first act recorded for us from the children of Adam and Eve, that was Cain murdering Abel. And such is the condition of man. And that means then that every child is noted, produced, is a child produced in the condition of spiritual death. Romans 5, in Adam all died. Even David understood that in sin my mother conceived me. And because of this condition then, the judgment, wrath, and condemnation of God abides on all humanity at all times. If you remember, just summary statements in Ephesians chapter 2, when he talks about our spiritual death, he says that we were outside of Christ and before salvation and before grace, we were children of wrath even as the rest. It means our nature in itself could excite from God only judgment, provoke from God only wrath. And he repeats that in several other places. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said in John 3, 36, that those who do not obey the Son, the wrath of God abides on them. And such is the condition of all men in God's judgment upon Adam and Eve. Secondly, a second judgment. We see then immediately, very, very in a very short order in our walk through Scripture, that God judges the entire world through a flood. And I would just submit, I find it curious sometimes, particularly of Christians who have a problem with the judgment of God, who have no problem acknowledging the flood. If you acknowledge the flood and the judgment of God of all humanity, which he quite literally destroyed every single human being on the face of the earth by drowning them, saving only Noah and his family, then we have no surprise at any other judgment that comes. Why would we be surprised when he sends a flood and an earthquake in local senses? Why would we be surprised when he sends other smaller judgments if we understand the condition of man and what he's already done and what is coming? then that should be no surprise at all. Again, we should be surprised it doesn't happen more often. Again, this is whether our thoughts are renewed to think God's thoughts or whether we start with ourselves. 
So God destroyed the entirety of humanity, as noted, save Noah. And the proof, another proof, besides the fact of the indictment of God, that he said the thoughts and intentions of their heart are only evil continually. And he talked about the violence of man that was spread throughout all of the earth. Consider this as well, that Noah, according to 2 Peter, was a preacher of righteousness, and that for 120 years. And not one single person believed. That's recorded for us in Scripture. Not one single soul for 120 years that saw Noah build an ark, that heard Noah preach righteousness, that heard through Noah God's warning to turn and be saved, no doubt, not one single human soul believed that message. Why? Because they were born of Adam. How could they? Unless God had intervened. And so God's indictment then on man, of which they are representative, is this. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. He says later, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. God looked on the earth and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. And so he said, I will blot out from the face of the land every living thing that I have made. All flesh that moved on the earth perished. Birds and cattle and beasts and every swarming thing that swarms upon the earth and all mankind and of all that was on the dry land, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life died. God reaffirms in Genesis chapter 9 the sinfulness of man and yet he makes a covenant with Noah. Now we've noted this before. Why did he make a covenant with Noah? What is one of the significance? What is the significance of the covenant with Noah when he says, "I will no longer destroy the world by a flood. I will no longer wipe out all humanity as I just did." What is the significance of that? Well, because there is a promise that he will crush Satan on the head. There is a line that goes through Abel that ultimately then goes through Noah and eventually is going to come to Abraham and and move on through that. God is preserving his promise, a people for a promise, the seed promise for salvation that he will bring. So the only word then, if we're to put this back in our understanding of judgment, the only reason that God doesn't do that again is because he has a promise. Not because man isn't deserving of it. Not because man's sin is any less. Not because God's anger and justice against man's sin is any less. But because God made a promise and he stays his hand. He stays his hand from bringing the judgment that we all deserve and so he made a covenant well let's fast forward what is another judgment of God the exodus again many in between but we're highlighting some of the major ones the exodus the exodus God had formed his people as he had promised he made them into a nation he made them into a nation essentially under the authority and in the womb of Egypt and there they were eventually oppressed as God had said that they would be oppressed And God, out of his covenant faithfulness to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and according to the cry of his covenant people, delivered them. He delivered them. And he delivered them in such a way that he would declare before all of the world, and really all of Egypt, and even his own people, that he alone is God and he alone is righteous. And how would he declare these things? And it's through judgments. Through judgments. He specifically, he says, raised up Pharaoh so that he might display his power and his glory through 
judgments. Let's just look at some of these passages. Again, you're familiar with them, but to remind ourselves of them. In Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, he says this. After saying that he's going to bring them out from under the burdens of Egypt of the Egyptians, he'll, he'll redeem them with an outstretched arm. And what does he say at the end of verse 6? And with great judgments. Great judgments. And why is it going to be through these great judgments? What does God seek to declare? Why wasn't it just one great judgment, one great deliverance? Why wasn't it just changing Pharaoh's heart? Why did it have to be this way? Well, he says in verse 7, he says, I then will take you for my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. It's going to be through judgments so that you will know that I am God and I am God alone. He says again, verse 3 of chapter 7, I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. That is, through his judgments. When Pharaoh does not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my host, my people, the sons of Israel, and the land of Egypt by great judgments. And what will God accomplish through these judgments? Verse 5. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. They will know that I am the Lord. We won't go through all of them, but listen to chapter 8, verse 20. He says this, he says, as he's bringing out these judgments, he says that he is going to bring judgments upon Israel. He talks about in verse 21, swarms of flies and so forth, and they will make the life of the Egyptians miserable. He says, but on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people are living And he says, why? In order that you may know that I am the Lord in your midst. I will bring judgments on them and I will spare you. So that you will know that I am the Lord. Let me give one more. Chapter 9. Verse 14. For this time, he says, I will send all my plagues on you, speaking to Pharaoh through Moses, and your servants and your people. Why? So that you may know that there is no one like me in all of the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would then have been cut off from the earth. For this reason, I have allowed you to remain. Now consider this. Why did God allow them to remain? Why did God allow Egypt to remain? Well, he answers it. Verse 16. In the middle. In order, there's the purpose to show you my power in order to proclaim my name through all of the earth. Now, again, this sets for us the context of how we think about judgment. And this is why the judgment of God, it will say this, give it some more, but it's a litmus test for our view of God. Does the judgments of God produce in the heart a kind of uncomfortableness, a kind of revulsion, a, a, a kind of a sense of wanting to say that's not true or minimize it? If it does, then it means in some manner we're thinking wrongly about God and we're thinking wrongly about sin. We're thinking wrongly about who He is. 
God specifically is declaring here that I, on purpose, for my own reasons and for my own glory, have hardened Pharaoh's heart. Why? So that I can multiply my judgments. Why? So that the Egyptians and you will know that I am the Lord. And I alone am the Lord. I alone will be exalted. I alone am to be trusted. I alone will be, receive the glory from the things that I do. That sets our heart. And if we get there, there's joy. God's judgments then reveal the emptiness as well of false gods. One more in Exodus, Exodus 12, 12. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. So judgment then declares here in the Exodus that the earth belongs to him, as we noted, he is creator, that all the nations are accountable to him, Egypt as well as Israel, his covenant people, and the weight of his holiness weighs on all who bear his image, not merely Israel. One more, or two more. The exile. And this is where we'll have to stop this morning, these last two. The exile. The exile. What do we mean by the exile? Well, some of you are familiar. If you're not, the exile refers, refers to that momentous moment in the history of Israel where after suffering long with them, God brings final judgment. He does this in two phases. If you remember, Israel split into the northern tribes and the southern tribe in Jerusalem. And the northern tribes were all bad. There were no good kings there. They had as their capital Samaria. And they were destroyed in the 8th century BC by the Assyrian Empire and carried off to exile. And no more was there a northern tribe, a group of northern tribes after that. Though there were good, tree, uh, good kings in the southern tribes, they ultimately also succumbed to the ongoing reality of their corruption. And God eventually judged them as well. It was the turning point in the history of Israel. And he judged, as you are probably familiar with Jerusalem, through the nation of Babylon. And it was a horrible destruction as described in detail in Lamentations. Cannibalism, fear, burning, all that was precious and all that represented the promises of God of them as his covenant people destroyed and wiped out and then spit out as it were and vomited out of the land of promise, the covenant land of promise. So God judged his people severely. Why did he do this? For their rejection of him. For their casting his word behind them. Embracing the corruption of idolatry. And God used other nations. We read Habakkuk chapter 1 last time where Habakkuk is struggling as he's anticipating this judgment that's to come on Israel. And he says, you're using a nation even worse than we are. And so it was. And God destroyed them and cast them out of the land. Let me go to one other place. We'll mention that again next week. What is the other significant judgment? There is the judgment of Adam and Eve. There is the judgment of the flood. I skipped one, the judgment of Babel. Uh, we would note in which God divided the world up into multiple nations according to their language, setting the context, one, of the uniqueness of his distinguishing of Israel and also setting up the context of those who would afflict Israel so that he could show his judgment on those nations and his salvation to his people. But the, 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 the sixth judgment uh, is this. So there's the judgment of Adam and Eve, the judgment of the flood, the judgment of battle, Babel, the judgment of the exodus, the judgment of the exile. But there is one culminating judgment that we are familiar with, and that is the final judgment. The final judgment that will mark the end of this present world. 
One noted this in light of this reality. The fact of coming judgment means that all human beings are advancing toward God's final verdict on themselves and on their works. End quote. And we are familiar with Hebrews 9.27. It is appointed for a man to die once, and then comes the judgment. So now while there are several eschatological judgments uh, that complete God's wrath upon unbelief, we would hold to the tribulation judgment and the judgment at the end of the millennial kingdom, the culmination of all the judgments of God, the judgment of all humanity, the judgment of all humanity from Adam and Eve to the last person that will ever, ever be born is the great white throne judgment, that which precedes the final and eternal state of the redeemed in the new heavens and the new earth. Let me mention this by way of reminder briefly. And that is in Revelation chapter 20. Now again, if we're thinking biblically and we're thinking according to the gospel and who God is, man, and the work of Christ, and so forth, we have to come to the sober reality that this is the end of all men. This is the end of all humanity. It is a scene of judgment. Certainly of the redeemed, the end is that scene of great glory and dwelling with Christ and His glory and the kingdom and so forth. But for all humanity, those who have already died, those who will be born and died outside, die outside of Christ, is this scene. Verse 11, let me just read it. And then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, whose, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in them, and death and Hades were, gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That is the end of all humanity. Both the small and the great. Both the educated and the uneducated. Both those who are desirable and those who are undesirable. Of all humanity, this is the end. It ends with a scene of judgment. And the verdict rendered here in judgment against the sin of man, the deeds which are all recorded before God, is eternal. It is, he says here, thrown into the lake of fire, which has already been described as eternal. Eternal suffering. Jesus mentioned this many times. He mentioned in Matthew 25, 26, about those who go into eternal life and those who into eternal punishment throughout all of Scripture. This is mentioned several times. And so this is the sobering reality We'll get to a more positive thing next time, side of this judgment. But this is the sobering reality that we must begin with. This is God's world. He has created it. God is holy and righteous. Man was made in his image to reflect that holiness and righteousness. Sin has entered into this world. God then stands because of his holy nature in relationship to man as judge, also as savior, but outside of salvation as judge to all humanity. 
This judgment is displayed throughout his dealings with man in significant ways and in little ways, but will ultimately culminate in one final verdict rendered on every human being that was ever born outside of Christ. That's reality, and that's the world as it exists. And yet, as we would end with that thought for today, what do we celebrate? We celebrate the table. We celebrate bread and wine that picture God's remedy for our sin. Nobody in this room was born outside of that condition in reality. Everyone was born under that state, that spiritual reality. And yet, God, out of faithfulness to his own promise, for his own glory, to his own praise, everlastingly is the Lamb who purchased from every tribe, nation, and tongue a people for himself, to honor him and to know his blessing, his, the riches of his kindness throughout all of eternity. He died for us. And he took on the judgment of God for us. So what do we celebrate in this table? We're basically in these elements celebrating our trust in him who saved us from the judgment of God by bearing it for us. Who averted the wrath of God through his propitiatory sacrifice, that fancy word, for us. Who stood as a substitute for us who suffered the anguish of soul beyond what we can even fathom as anticipated in Isaiah for us and on our behalf, so that rather than the judgment of God, what do we hope for? Blessing, forgiveness, joy, kindness, hope, all of our hopes bound up in Him. And we remember that here as we come to the table. So let's pray. The men will come forward. And hand out the elements. Father, thank you for thank you for the joy, the good news that is at the end of the bad news. And although we didn't cover that this morning, but we will, we delight and to know and we come before you with gratitude that we do not get what our sins deserve, we who are in Christ. We will never suffer your wrath against sin, O Christ, because you suffered for us. We will never know what we deserve. All we will ever know as we sing in one of our songs is grace. As we sing this morning, mercy. All we will ever know is you as our Father. You as the one who rescued us. You who have brought us into the kingdom of light. You who have made us children, sons, and daughters. You who have opened up to us the glories of your word. You have brought us into everlasting nearness and fellowship with you. Even the fellowship that you, Father, Son, and Spirit have enjoyed from all of eternity. Indeed, our Lord, you said that even as the Father knows you and you know the Father, and so we know you and we are known by the Father. How can we fathom these things but let us contemplate them with humility and renewed desire to live in light of eternity and our salvation, even as we remember that in these elements. So to that end, we pray that you strengthen our faith, point us to Christ. In his name we pray, amen.